This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. Our show is about to begin. Three rings for the elven kings under the sky. Seven for the dwarf lords in halls of stone. Nine for mortal men doomed to die. One for the dark lord on his dark throne in the land of Mordor where the shadows lie. One ring to rule them all. One ring to find them. One ring to bring them all and in the darkness bind them in the land of Mordor, where the shadows lie. This is The Soundtrack Show. Welcome back to The Soundtrack Show. I'm your host, David W. Collins, and we are about to take our first look and listen to the film music of The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, a movie from 2001 based on a novel by J.R.R. Tolkien, adapted by Fran Walsh, Philippa Boyens, and Peter Jackson, directed by Peter Jackson, with a film score by Howard Shore. The Fellowship of the Ring, or Fellowship for short, is a very different kind of movie than any we've looked at so far, for several reasons. Reason number one. While we have looked at movies that kick off trilogies in the past, this movie, and in many ways its film score, is inseparable from the other two films that follow it. So much so that all three of these films were announced at the same time, were advertised in the same trailer, and were released one year apart from each other. So even though we're beginning our dive into Fellowship of the Ring, we're really going on an adventure through Middle-earth. 
Middle Earth, you say? What, uh... Yes, the source material of Fellowship, and this is reason number two for why it's such a different movie, comes from novels written by J.R.R. Tolkien decades ago. Fellowship was published in 1954, as was The Two Towers, the second volume. It arrived later that year. And finally, the third volume of The Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, was published in October 1955. Together, these three volumes are known as The Lord of the Rings. Their influence weighs heavily on the fantasy genre. Lord of the Rings became immensely popular in the 1960s and has remained so ever since, ranking as one of the most popular works of fiction of the 20th century, judged by both sales and reader surveys. The Lord of the Rings started as a sequel to Tolkien's popular children's book, The Hobbit, published in 1937. But Lord of the Rings quickly grew in depth and darkness during the writing process into what we know today. And in order to talk about the movie and its music, we need to discuss the world of the Lord of the Rings called Middle-earth first. For starters, it's a vast world with thousands and thousands of years of backstory. That's right, thousands. It's a fictional land filled with forests, rivers, kingdoms, mountains, lakes, seas, caves, and fields. With elves, dwarves, wizards, goblins, and orcs, creatures of all kinds, kingdoms of men, and, well, hobbits. More on them later. Fellowship begins in what is known as the Third Age of Middle-earth. Each age in the Middle-earth fiction contains multiple millennia of history. Fellowship, for example, doesn't begin until around mm, 3001 or 3004 in the Third Age, or 1404 by Shire Reckoning. Again, more on that later. So explaining all of that in just three movies, not to mention condensing it down as an historical introduction to a music podcast, is a daunting task. Seems impossible, actually. But what we're going to discuss today is just how Fellowship managed to do it. Not just with its brilliant introduction to Middle-earth during the film's prologue, but with Howard Shore's entire approach to its film score. Howard Shore, the composer of The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, is a Canadian composer born in Toronto, Ontario in 1946. When he was 13, he met Lorne Michaels at summer camp, the future creator of Saturday Night Live. After attending Berklee College of Music, my alma mater as well, Shore played in a jazz fusion ensemble called Lighthouse, a very successful band that actually opened for Jimi Hendrix at one point. This was before he started working again with Lorne Michaels as the musical director of Saturday Night Live from 1975 to 1980. And Howard Shore is credited with writing both the intro and closing music of that show, as well as writing music for multiple famous sketches. Live from New York, it's Saturday Night! NBC Saturday Night. Starring the Novelty for Primetime Players, Dan Aykroyd, John Belushi, Chevy Chase, James Curtin, Garrett Morris, Lorraine Newman, Gilda Radner. With Howard Shore and his all nurse band, After 1980, Shore began writing film scores, most notably for David Cronenberg on movies like The Fly, for director Jonathan Demme on Silence of the Lambs and Philadelphia, 
and director David Fincher on Seven, and later Panic Room. But after scoring so many dark films like the ones mentioned above, Howard Shore was announced as the composer on the upcoming Lord of the Rings films. This was a move that surprised some people. The Rings movies were undoubtedly going to be huge blockbuster affairs, filled with action. Yes, right? I mean, if we're in the late 90s, we have some expectations here about what these film scores are probably going to be. So, how did Howard Shore get the gig? Well, here's what we know. Shore was a huge fan of Lord of the Rings, especially in the 1960s. He read and reread the volumes when he was touring on the road, presumably with Lighthouse. One day, in the late 1990s, he got a call from director Peter Jackson about the Lord of the Rings films that Jackson was making down in New Zealand. Well, Shore immediately flew to New Zealand to check out what Jackson was cooking up, which, by the way, New York to New Zealand is no short plane flight to take for an interview. Shore said, quote, I received a phone call directly from Peter. He was in New Zealand, and it was a fascinating project that he described. I journeyed down to New Zealand after the call. The level of filmmaking was amazing and inspiring. I wanted to be a part of it. End quote. Oh, to be a fly on the wall during that conversation. I can't help but imagine that it was Shore's intense love for the books that won him the gig. I'm sure he bonded over a shared passion for Tolkien's work with Jackson and his creative team. Shore described his musical writing process during the creation of the score for Rings, saying, quote, I always had the book as a guide. It was always open on my desk, and as I was creating thematic ideas and motifs for the film, I was always rereading the book, all the time, but especially when I was scoring specific scenes. I would go back to the book and reread it to gain insight into the story. So this brings me to reason number three why Fellowship of the Ring is so different than any other blockbuster movie we've covered so far. Its film score is very different. How? Well, in my opinion, Howard Shore didn't just write music for Peter Jackson's 2001 film of Fellowship. No. With Jackson's support, Shore was actually scoring Middle Earth itself. He was writing definitive music for the characters, locations, and most importantly, the many different cultures of Middle Earth, as well as synchronizing a film score to picture. And my friends, you can absolutely hear it in his music. Much of the shorthand for Middle Earth that we experience in Jackson's Fellowship comes from the descriptive, rich nature of Howard Shore's music. It informs us not only dramatically of what's going on in the plot, but through music, we get an immediate and visceral sense of what the various cultures and characters in Middle-earth are all about. And now for a brief intermission. We return now to the Soundtrack Show. The music score on any film is obviously vitally important because it totally guides your emotions when you're watching the film. I mean, the actors can do their job, the director can do their job in terms of creating a certain amount of mood and emotion, but obviously music is like so strong in evoking what you should be feeling at any given time. Peter and Fran were very clear that they wanted someone that would collaborate with them, that would be willing to invest the time to develop themes and to help us even in production. Yeah. Because 
more so than just scoring the film, I wanted the music to reflect Tolkien. I wanted the music to also bring the world of Middle-earth to life. So Howard agreed to come down and meet with Peter. And he visited the set. And he visited the set again a few, mo a few months later, and he was just started to immerse himself in the world very, very quickly once, once he'd agreed to do the film. You could see the depth of the creativity of what they were trying to create in New Zealand and the passion for it. And I think it was on that very first trip that I had decided that I definitely wanted to do the film. It seemed like a hugely daunting task to do three films. Normally on movies, composers might work for six or eight weeks, but Howard was with us um, from very early on in the shoot. So, you know, by the time The Fellowship of the Ring had been released, Howard had been on the film for nearly two years. Tolkien spent 14 years writing Lord of the Rings, and you're now writing a musical image, creating the music, a musical mirror, if you will, uh, to, to his writing. And I mention this so, so often, uh, you know, even in, in other discussions about feeling like Frodo, and I really did feel like that, that I had this amazing uh, journey to take, and I had the ring in my vest pocket, and you were chosen, now you're going to write the music to Lord of the Rings, and uh, you had to do it. It was more than what we could have ever dreamt, really, because, you know, Howard has become part of our family, part of our team on this film, and he is totally devoted to, to somehow um, give the music a cultural significance. Uh, a section of the Encyclopedia of Moria, just so you understand, to give you some idea of this particular world that we're trying to create. Uh, Moria, it's in the year 1697, at the second age of the sun. So that it's doing two jobs at the same time. And one, it's underscoring the film. It's providing an emotional link, a bridge between the movie and the audience. And it's drawing the audience in. But it's doing it in such a way that it's also telling you a lot about the cultures of this world. The Lord of the Rings films tell a story. And the music describes the world surrounding that story. Themes absorb cultural details, imply dramatic connections, and reflect the development of the story's characters and ideas. There are almost as many themes as there are such elements. Over 50 leitmotifs are used in the piece. The history of the ring theme, just one of several melodies assigned to the ring, forms the first notes of the symphony and could be said to be the central theme of the entire score. It rises and falls in a breath-like pattern to give the ring a sense of consciousness and purpose. You know, reading the novel, The Fellowship of the Ring, is not a small task. I'm going to be honest here. I read the novel, but it took me a few years after the films had been released and a couple of tries to finish it. I had read The Hobbit as a kid and then again as an adult, but Fellowship, the novel, is a different kind of reading experience than The Hobbit. First of all, it's a much, much longer read, as you can guess. After a hundred pages in the book, you still haven't left the Shire. This is something to be very aware of when it comes to Middle-earth. It moves at a slower pace than we may think, something that the movie of Fellowship navigates with great aplomb when adapting for modern audiences in a theater. But, for example, Gandalf visits the Shire over the course of several years, not days, in the beginning of the book. When Gandalf leaves to go and study about the ring, he's gone for a decade in the book before he comes back to warn Frodo about what he really holds in his possession, left to him by Bilbo, the Ring of Power. From there, it takes Bilbo five months to leave the Shire in the book, something that seems to happen immediately in the movie. Another example. 
While in the elven safe haven of Rivendell, the Council of Elrond takes place on October the 25th. The Fellowship doesn't leave Rivendell until December 25th, two months later. And even then, with all of this stretched out time, the events of Frodo Baggins and his Fellowship are lightning speed compared to the overall history of Middle-earth. Events are unfolding relatively quickly after being in development for thousands of years. I think it's important to remember this when thinking about the film, because the film moves very, very quickly. We're being given a ton of information. We have to track dozens of characters, locations, names, and languages, many of which might sound similar to people who aren't used to it. More on all of that in a future episode. We have to track even geography, politics, and place it in context of a long history that took place before our adventure even began. So, the film feels like it moves very quickly. Yet somehow, when it comes to the film score, Howard Shore seems to do the impossible. Yes, he keeps up with the pace, with the action, he underscores the emotions, the drama, the suspense of the film superbly. But he does it in a very unexpected way. Not with the bombast of a huge action film like The Phantom Menace or Independence Day or The Matrix or any other major action film that came out in the mid to late 90s. Instead, he keeps a Middle-earth-paced macro view of the entire mythology in his music. His themes are developed slowly and are expressed in long musical lines, something that's very dangerous as a film composer because... It's hard to get long melodies in films. I mean, you need feet and frames. You need film real estate. You need seconds of the film to actually express a complete long melody. Shore develops these themes and changes them not through just one movie, but through three. He writes not in a flurry of 16th notes and a battery of percussion. He writes in whole notes, half notes, chord clusters, legato lines of beauty and grandeur. In essence, he breathes and sighs like Middle-earth itself. Another interesting fact, fact number four by my count, that separates Fellowship from other films. While someone like John Williams had to write, say, The Empire Strikes Back in roughly six weeks, Howard Shore wrote the music for all three films over the course of four years. Four years! What we know about Howard Shore from multiple accounts, including his childhood friend Lorne Michaels, is that he is disciplined, very detail-oriented, and can mold and shift his style to accommodate many different needs, or in the case of rings, cultures. When listening to the score for Fellowship of the Ring, one gets a sense that his approach to Middle-earth is one of a musical anthropologist, much like the costume, set, and art designers on the film, Shore meticulously creates cultures with his music, giving us a fully realized sense of who our characters are, where they come from, and even the long Middle-earth history that they and their ancestors carry. It's uncanny for a film score, but as I said, along with obviously scoring the movies in front of him, you can hear... Shore's definitive Middle-earth approach to his music in the final result. Let's start our look at the music with the One Ring itself. Fellowship of the Ring, both the novel and the movie, start more or less with a poem, the one that I spoke at the top of this episode, 
In it, you learn about the twenty rings that were forged, nineteen of which were a deception, a Trojan horse, if you will, as they were designed to ultimately be controlled by the One Ring of Power, which belongs to the Dark Lord Sauron. Sauron poured much of his own evil power into this ring to ultimately bring all lands and all people into the land of Mordor, his kingdom, under his reign of darkness. Our story begins, and by the way, the film does an amazing job of giving us a summary in about eight minutes at the top of Fellowship. Our story begins after this huge battle between Sauron, the Dark Lord, and a last alliance between elves and men, and the ring of power that belongs to Sauron is lost for thousands of years. Sauron has seemingly been defeated, but not. And the movie even tells you about how the ring was, thousands of years later, accidentally found by this creature called Gollum, and then happened upon by a hobbit named Bilbo Baggins. All of this took place in the novel The Hobbit. But mainly, the takeaway about the ring of power in this prologue is this. It is evil. It was conceived as a deception. And as an object, it contains evil magic. It almost has a life of its own. It deceives whoever wears it. After Sauron fell in that battle that I mentioned earlier during the Second Age, <laughs> real Middle-earth history here, a prince named Isildur picked up the ring off of Sauron's hand, and he should have destroyed it, but he didn't. He wore it, drawn in by its irresistible power. But the ring betrayed him. It actually left him. By the way, the ring has this ability to shrink and grow to perfectly fit the hands of whoever currently has it in its possession, giving it the ability to slip away if it decides to. And it does. It's this deception that I want us to keep in mind as we listen to Howard Shore's theme for the One Ring, the Ring of Power. interesting piece. It fills us with an uneasy feeling. It's at first beautiful, but then treacherous. There's a wonderful book, by the way, called The Music of the Lord of the Rings by Doug Adams that chronicles each and every leitmotif that Shore wrote for The Lord of the Rings. I'm happy to share that Doug and I recorded an interview for the soundtrack show and will be featured in a later episode. But Doug spent years with Howard Shore and the Lord of the Rings score as it was being developed, and has already published a perfect musical analysis of all of these themes. So from here on out, I'm essentially amplifying the analyses of Doug Adams. Regarding the theme for The Ring, Adams lays out the musical deception in this piece, which I'm going to demonstrate for us. So here's the piece. It's an interesting piece. We start out here in F minor, right? So you know that you're kind of in this dark place. But what's going up on the top in the melody is totally different than that. 
Uh, Doug Adams describes it as A minor over F minor. I actually hear more of an F major Lydian thing happening. You know, I, I kind of hear this. You know. Lydian, which we discussed in our Back to the Future episodes, it's kind of got this sense of awe and wonder, you know, Maria, the Simpsons, that sort of thing. Um, that's kind of what I've always heard because of this strong F in the bass. Um, you know, this F major over F major uh, seven over F minor sound. I suppose there's no real right or wrong answer here, but the deception, I think, rings really clear in our ears. The rings like, you know, over here going, hey guys, it's totally all cool. No, it's not at all. No, seriously, guys, I'm really a cool ring. No, you're a liar. You know, like it's actually kind of, um, you think it's in this Lydian, uh, you think it's in this kind of Lydian mode, but it's not. Actually, it settles down here. There is a core deception of hope and then total despair. Down here. So there is a built-in trick into the main ring theme. It's more than just a clever poetic move on Shore's part. You can feel it. You can also feel the centuries-long journey of the ring, as this is a great example of a slow melody that unfolds into evil darkness over a long period of time. Yada, da, 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 da. That's a slow melody to open up your giant blockbuster. This theme is a contained story in and of itself about the ring. A deception that envelops us all into a long darkness. Again, great melodies tell great stories. So back to that poem at the beginning, back to the prologue of Fellowship the movie. This ring is meant to ensnare the great people of Middle-earth. And who are these different people, these different races, kingdoms? Well, Shore goes to tremendous effort to musically define them all. As far as the people of Middle-earth are concerned, we have to start, musically, with the elves. The first thing to know? Yeah, not all elves are the same. Told you Middle-earth runs deep. There are the elves of Rivendell, which we'll discuss in a bit. The elves of Mirkwood, which are in The Hobbit. Legolas the elf is a Mirkwood elf. But the first musical sound that we're even introduced to in all of these movies, directly before the theme of the ring that I just played, is that of the elves of Lothlorien. Lothlorien is the fairest realm of elves remaining in Middle-earth during the Third Age. And while we eventually do get there in the film, we actually hear it musically long before we see it. Let's take a listen.
the sound of a female chorus singing long legato lines. Here's a quote from Doug Adams' book, starting with a quote from Howard Shore. Lothlorien is, quote, a more mysterious world of elves. They could be bad, they could be good. You're not really sure, end quote. Adams goes on to say, quote, the music of Lothlorien in particular demanded a very specific style of vocal performance, an unaffected, clear tone with little vibrato, long arcing phrases drawn in natural contours that would lend the music an ancient tone. The voices carry it, Shore comments. This is Middle-earth of thousands of years ago. When I started doing research, I started thinking about Gregorian chants and so on. End quote. Yes, if you listen to Gregorian chant, or more accurately called plain chant, which existed in the Middle Ages for hundreds of years, you hear our own earth history, and you get a similar sense of ancient music. So drawing upon our own emotional reaction to this sound of something ancient was a really smart move on Shore's part. But more than just being ancient, Lothlorien is, in fact, timeless. While this is a large feature in the novel, the idea being that those entering the realm of Lothlorien step into an eternal spring that exists out of time, it's merely hinted at in the movie. This music perfectly scores how Peter Jackson shot the Lothlorien sequence, if you go and rewatch the movie, you'll notice that all of the actors are shot in slow motion. They had to redub their dialogue later to slow down their own vocal performance with the final footage. Everything in Lothlorien exists, like its music, out of time. But it doesn't stop there. Lothlorien's music also features a very exotic scale. Doug Adams comments, quote, like the other elf music, there are chromatically fueled Eastern flavors. He goes on to say, quote, In style, Lothlorien is the most Eastern and exotic of all the elves' music. Listen to the modal scale of it. You know, you've got this kind of flat two and flat seven thing going on here. Flat six. But then you do this... You do this major third here, large Eastern music influences here. And Lothlorien's star elf, the Queen Galadriel, played by Kate Blanchett, is the narrator of our prologue, a viewpoint as old, seemingly, as Middle-earth itself, telling us everything that has happened thus far, for thousands of years, before we even begin our main story. Here's the Lothlorien theme. Yama. The world is changed. I feel it in the water. I feel it in the earth. I smell it in the air. Much that once was is lost. For none now live who remember it. Now here's the theme for the ring. Later in the story, we meet different elves, including one that we spot in the prologue on the battlefield, Elrond, played by actor Hugo Weaving, and his city of great learning and culture, Rivendell. 
Rivendell is breathtaking and gorgeous, and it feels very different from Lothlorien. make you feel? Let's dive into the chord arpeggios and melody here. So we've got this kind of like... And then down here. We go from this A major with a flatted sixth down to an F major with a flatted sixth. The same is true for the choral melody. This immediately gives Rivendell a sense of awe and wonder, of beauty. It's that same almost augmented sound that John Williams used to score the vastness of space at the end of his title crawl. But by dropping from A major down to F major, which would be the flatted sixth if the key of A is our root. Meaning it gives this piece a very minor key type of dark progression. But the actual major chords fight against that. This is a trick that Shaw does more than once in his scores. Major chords moving through minor progressions. It gives it a grandiose sense of awe and power, and a feeling of Rivendell being a beacon of light and hope in a world growing in darkness. And indeed, in Fellowship, it's where Frodo's life is saved and a fellowship is forged. The Soundtrack Show will continue in a moment. We return now to The Soundtrack Show. It began with the forging of the Great Rings, Three were given to the elves, immortal, wisest, and fairest of all beings. Seven to the dwarf lords, great miners and craftsmen of the mountain halls. And nine, nine rings were gifted to the race of men who above all else desire power. For within these rings was bound the strength and will to govern each race. But they were all of them deceived, for another ring was made. In the land of Mordor, in the fires of Mount Doom, the Dark Lord Sauron forged in secret a master ring to control all others. And into this ring he poured his cruelty, his malice, and his will to dominate all life. One ring to rule them all. So we've talked about elves. What about other cultures? How does Howard Shore handle dwarves, for example? I'm so glad you asked. The culture of dwarves, as Doug Adams puts it, quote, 
values earthy labor over lofty considerations. Fittingly, Shore's dwarf music is blocky and stout, full of basso profundo timbres and hard-cornered rhythms, the music of sharpened axes and hewed stone, end quote. So a lot of their harmony is in what are called parallel fifths. Melodies that are a fifth apart that move in parallel motion. If you remember back to some of my earlier episodes on the soundtrack show, you'll recall that fifths are a perfect interval. They're not major. They're not minor. They're like... the stone pillars in Western music, as they exist together in nature in the Overtone series. For more on that, please check out my episode entitled, What is Music? No, seriously, what is it? So it's appropriate that the dwarves' music would be so heavy in parallel, perfect fifths. Like the massive stone pillars inside Moria or Erebor. For our information, by the way, parallel fifths are also the harmonic backbone for heavy metal music. But I digress. Another great feature of the dwarves' music that also reflects their culture is the guttural male chanting. From Doug Adams' book regarding the dwarf music during the sequence in Moria, quote, The chorus of dwarves consisted in the real world of 60 male Maori vocalists, 50 singers, and 10 grunters, Grunters who were not trained singers, but rugby players. Quote from Howard Shore, When you look down on those caverns, you hear these voices coming up from thousands of feet below, says Shore. The music of Moria is an unsettling reminder of what the dwarves' unchecked expansion awoke in the deep. End quote. So let's see, back to the poem. Three rings for the elven kings, elves check. Seven for the dwarf lords, check. Nine for mortal men doomed to die. Aha, the kingdoms of men. Well, this gets complicated. First of all, the kingdoms of men aren't doing so well during the events of fellowship. There are two kingdoms that we primarily deal with in Lord of the Rings. There's Rohan and their horse lords, which we won't meet until the Two Towers, so we'll put that aside for now. And then there's the kingdom of Gondor. Gondor is without a king at the moment. It's a long story, but basically one of our main characters who we first meet as a mysterious ranger named Strider...
turns out to be a descendant of the two dudes from thousands of years ago that fought Sauron and won, Elendil, who died in battle, and his son, the Prince Isildur, who I mentioned slayed Sauron, keeping the ring for himself, etc., and ultimately perished when the ring betrayed him. Again, all prologue-type stuff. So, this ranger, named Strider, who we grow to love and trust throughout the movie, turns out he's actually named Aragorn. This is another reason, by the way, why the Lord of the Rings is so complicated. Not only are there different kinds of cultures within one culture, but everything seems to have two or three names. So Aragorn is the rightful king of Gondor, even though he's posing as this ranger named Strider. But of course, he doesn't want to be the king of Gondor. Y you know what? <laughs> it's complicated, and you probably already know if you're still with me at this point, right? Anyway, Gondor and Rohan, the other kingdom, have themes. Putting Rohan aside, Gondor's theme debuts in Fellowship as a solo French horn, symbolic of a small, lone hope for the kingdom of men, in this character, Aragorn. We hear it as another man, Boromir, learns of his true heritage. The music is in a minor key, but what's more emphasized is the sort of noble opening fifth. Struggling a bit, and then ultimately ascending to the octave. A struggle toward strength, as the Lord of the Rings takes place in the Third Age, where kingdoms of men have their ascension. As the movies develop, these themes become more powerful, but for now, this solo French horn, swimming in reverb, is all we get for the kingdoms of men. Why not use this ring? Long has my father, the steward of Gondor, kept the forces of Mordor at bay. By the blood of our people are your lands kept safe. Give Gondor the weapon of the enemy. Let us use it against him. You cannot wield it. None of us can. The One Ring answers to Sauron alone. It has no other master. And what would a ranger know of this matter? This is no mere ranger. He is Aragorn, son of Arathorn. You owe him your allegiance. Aragorn. This is Isildur's heir and heir to the throne of Gondor. Have a dad, I was. Gondor has no king. Gondor needs no king. But wait, you may be asking. 
whatever happened to those nine rings and those mortal men doomed to die? Heh. <laughs> yeah, those. They're in fellowship. Oh boy, they're definitely a huge part of fellowship. Those are the Nazgul. Nazgul is black speech, the language of Mordor, for ring wraith, mindless servants of Sauron, neither alive nor dead, who chase our heroes in search of the Ring of Power throughout the whole film. This is what's become of those ancient nine kings of men. They were deceived. So, do the ring wraiths have a musical leitmotif? By the way, for more on leitmotifs and their musical history, be sure to check out my episode called Wagner, the First Lord of the Ring. Anyway, to answer the question, yes, the ring wraiths do have a leitmotif. Before I play it, do you remember that theme for the One Ring? Well, if you take all of those notes in that theme and then play them simultaneously as a chord, you get the sound of the Nazgul, the Ring Wraiths. We're just getting started. We have so much more to discuss on future episodes. Of course, out of all of the cultures that Howard Shore created musically, we have yet to discuss perhaps the most important, yet simplest of them all, the music for The Hobbits. We will also discuss the musical formation of The Fellowship of the Ring and its main theme. We'll talk about Isengard and the Uruk-hai, Sauron, and a theme for nature itself. All of this and more as we continue our journey through Middle-earth and Howard Shore's music for The Fellowship of the Ring. Thank you. <laughs>